Hello everyone and welcome to episode 109 of the History Hotline. My name is Diana Lincook and as always I'll be your host today. Today's episode is going to be about the 1900 Pan-African Conference and it included individuals such as John Richard Archer who was born on the 8th of June 1863 and was known as a British politician and political activist and for being elected the mayor of Battersea in 1913. Now we're going to go into his life next week and look at you know how he became mayor and maybe his upbringing and things of that nature but this week we're going to be looking at the Pan-African Conference um, with which he had um, some influence uh, and was part of. I initially thought of doing the episode on John Archer first and then the episode on the Pan-African Conference, but I really wanted to contextualise John Archer's life within this kind of period whereby there were a handful of black activists concerned with political rights in the empire, um, all working within Britain in this context, actually, for the rights of black people all over the world. I really wanted to make sure I was understood that, you know, he wasn't just kind of working in isolation and that there actually were a lot of people um, working for the rights of black people and putting on things like a Pan-African conference as early as 1900. Um, and I'm going to speak a little bit about Pan-Africanism as well today and think about some of the people that gave papers at the conference and that spoke and what they spoke about and how they were bringing these ideas of liberation um, all together to Britain, um, but for a kind of global cause. The first Pan-African conference was held in July 1900 at Westminster Town Hall. John Archer and the likes of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, the black British composer, were elected to the executive committee of the somewhat short-lived Pan-African Association, which was established at the conference. Pan-Africanism was one of the major political traditions of the 20th century, and obviously still around now uh, in different iterations. Pan-Africanism is a kind of mindset or a movement, maybe you could say, um, and it it's an attempt to create a sense of of oneness, of community, of brotherhood or collaboration amongst all people of African descent, whether they live inside or outside of Africa. They're of the diaspora, you know, they're now in, in Britain, in Canada, in the US, in Europe, wider Europe. Um, that's the kind of nature and the essence of Pan-Africanism. It's about racial solidarity, self-awareness um, of Africans, for Africa, opposition to racial discrimination, emancipation from white supremacy and domination, which were all, in many ways, all the more important in 1900, but definitely not anything we would kind of disregard when thinking about the politics of black liberation today. Pan-Africanism is a term that was first used in 1899, or that's the first record of it anyway. However, it's unclear who first used it. Pan-Africanism was an emergent movement in the last few years of the 19th century and it was cemented by the Pan-African Conference in London in July 1900. For the most part, this was due to the work and vision of Trinidadian Henry Sylvester Williams, who Peter Fryer in Staying Power notes is another long-neglected pioneer um, within movements of black liberation.
Henry Sylvester Williams was born in Trinidad in February 1869 in the village of Aruca, which was about 10 miles east of Port of Spain. He was an able student and qualified as a teacher at the age of 17 and was put in charge of the school only a year later. Teachers were poorly paid in Trinidad, so Williams decided to go to New York age 22. He went to Dalhousie University in 1893 to study law and then went to London, enrolling at King's College London. He would go on to lecture on Trinidad, denouncing Crown Colony rule, and was also the first person of African descent to speak under the House of Commons roof. He also founded the African Association in 1897, and its aims were to, and I quote, to encourage a feeling of unity, to facilitate friendly intercourse among Africans in general, to promote and protect the interests of all subjects claiming African descent, wholly or in part, in British colonies and other places, especially in Africa, by circulating accurate information on all subjects affecting their rights and privileges as subjects of the British Empire, by direct appeals to the imperial and local governments. Henry Sylvester Williams was the association secretary The president was Reverend Henry Mason Joseph, who was Antiguan, and the treasurer was Mrs. Evie Kinlock, who was an African woman from Natal, which is a province in South Africa um, that has a whole long history within itself that we could go into, but I would need to do more reading and it would need to be a whole other episode, which it will be one day. Um, So we're not going to go into that region today um, and that province in South Africa, but we know the history of South Africa is one that has... A whole lot of angles, uh, if you were ever to go into it, um, but not something that I have have done so much of, shall we say. But I think that kind of leadership, those few roles that we've just mentioned, and the original countries that those people are from, highlights the breadth of individuals that made up leadership within the organisation, coming from Africa and the Caribbean. It was most definitely the case that Williams wanted the association to be as representative as possible. And I quote, and he said, so that its information shall be direct and first-hand from the various parts of the empire, end quote. The organisation acted as an African and West Indian lobby, and it was representative of both, you know. Um, I find that sometimes we have very overarching labels like even on a city level, Afro-Caribbean society at universities, that tends to be very much unbalanced in its representation um, of different countries when it comes to Africa and the Caribbean, lumping them together. But I would say it was very much a case um, within this movement that there was actually a good span. And the Caribbean people weren't just from Jamaica, you know. I've just mentioned there, Trinidad, St. Lucia. It was most, and Antigua, sorry. It was most definitely the case that um, regions were well represented in to ensure that the information coming um, to Britain uh, about these countries was actually accurate and first-hand information of what people were actually struggling with or the political landscape or the social landscape or what was happening economically in each of these places um, was actually accurate and coming from people that were actually impacted, not just the diaspora, which is something I think we're guilty of today, speaking for people that may be, quote-unquote, back home or um, back in the Caribbean, back in Africa, as opposed to um, allowing them to kind of speak for themselves, if that makes sense. 
Williams conceived this idea of having a world conference for black people in 1898 and a call for such conference was issued. The conference wouldn't actually take place till 1900 as we've mentioned but the vision was very clear early on from Williams. One of the people that gave financial help to the conference was a figure in Britain's very small Indian community at the time, um, the ex-MP Dababai Inaroji, as he felt there were similarities between the work for Indian people that he was trying to do and what Williams was doing for African people. It was the first instance or the first recorded instance of Afro-Asian solidarity in Britain of a kind of practical help from Asian people to African people. Um, and it, you know, is recorded now in um, books written on the subject, and so it must have been quite significant the uh, financial help that was given in this time. And I think it's quite important actually to note the fact that Naroji saw those similarities between the work that Williams was doing and the work that he was trying to do. Um, essentially, this um, somewhat shared history of empire. Um, and at this point, you know, it's nineteen hundred. Um, Britain is very much ruling the majority of the world and then being able to kind of understand and see the similarities and situations between the eastern side of the world and the western side of the world. Um, I say that just geographically and not um, economically or politically or socially. Um, and the fact that, yeah, those similarities were drawn out and, and they afforded financial help uh, within the context is really remarkable, I would say. The conference would influence public opinion on situations that affected the welfare of the native people in parts of the empire, in South Africa, West Africa and the British West Indies. And after consultation with others, these others included Bishop James T. Holly, Bishop James Johnson, the American educator Booker T. Washington, it was decided that the conference would also cover the treatment of native races. They would also look at America and European rule there, widening the remit of what we now understand to be a Pan-African outlook. They were specifically looking at situations in South Africa, West Africa, the West Indies and the US um, at this point historically. And by April 1900, the Pan-African Conference Committee adopted the motto, and I quote, light and liberty. And they made it very clear that the conference would be an occasion and the first occasion and I quote, upon which black men would assemble in England to speak for themselves and endeavour to influence public opinion in their favour. And we're going to see if this was the case. When this meeting was reported about by the British press, um, it was the first time the term Pan-African was used uh, within, within the press. A week before the conference, a memorandum was presented to Bishop James Johnson, and in the document it said it was time for black people to develop their own talent and energy, that their efforts should be directed to the education of the young in order to move the race forwards, and that the current position of Africans, whether at home or in other nations, was not a good one and it had to change. Um, notes about the nature of the distortions of history when presented by white writers, needing to redress the balance, um, meant that they concluded that black people should be the ones to write their own history. And the quote was, develop and chronicle and set up their own libraries and organisations. Um, these ideas centre around self-determination and taking control of narratives that historically held black people in inferior positions across the globe. 
it's really interesting, I think, to place these ideas in the context of a very early 20th century, um, when it could be argued that even today some of those ideas are seen as, like, radical or, like, I don't know, progressive. Um, And back then they were kind of seen as the foundations of building this pan-African ideology in regards to black liberation. Um, But I think these are still points that are still have a lot of value in today's society. That's why I don't think you can ever disregard a movement like pan-Africanism. I don't think it's a movement that's over. I wouldn't say it's had an end, even though some of the organisations that centred themselves on the pan-African tradition ended um and things like the conference don't happen in the way that they did i still don't think you could kind of say that the the movement stopped because it's very much a political belief system now it's an ideology i think that people hold on to which is very important um, and it definitely has a place within today's society as you can probably understand just from what we've gone through so far and i'm going to go through some of the papers that people gave um it's quite a long list but i was going to pick out a few but I just found them all to be really interesting, so I kind of went with the majority of them. Um, and these come from um, Peter Fryer's Staying Power and, of course, Hakeem Adi's African and Caribbean People in Britain, um, both amazing sources uh, for this time period, um, the kind of early 20th century and Pan-Africanism. Henry Sylvester Williams noted that never before had black people kind of descended upon London with a conference. Uh, There were about 37 delegates and 10 other participants and observers. And I'm going to list some of the papers that were given at the conference. Some of them I'll run through really quickly and some of them I'll give a little bit more information. But Bishop Alexander Walters, um, who was leader of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church of the United States, president for the National Afro-American Council, opened the conference with the trials and tribulations of the coloured race in America. Um, They're clearly bringing in the religious perspective as well as an African-American perspective from America. C.W. French from St. Kitts gave a paper on conditions favouring a high standard of African humanity and that looked at black people being recognised as human beings and enjoying equal rights comparatively to white people. Not really that radical, but at the time was pushing the boat slightly. Um, Miss Anna H. Jones from Kansas gave a paper on the preservation of race equality. Haitian Benedito Silvian who was aide-de-camp to the Ethiopian emperor, gave a paper on the necessary concord to be established between native races and European colonists. Um, And within this kind of, in Fryer's book anyway, he notes that he, and I quote, pulled no punches in his attacks on colonialism. Fryer also notes that within his paper, he talks about the fact that it was a right to choose the metropolis of the British Empire as a meeting place. So London was the perfect place for the conference because it was British people that were responsible for um, colonial policy, the preceding 15 years of British government that tolerated, and I quote, tolerated the most frightful deeds of the colonising companies. Um, So it was kind of bringing all the... I want to use a better word than gripes, but all the problems um, and the suffering and the pain that people of of the empire um, in Africa, in the Caribbean, in the US, not that they were part of the empire then, but, you know, all these people suffering at the hands of imperialism 
they were bringing this conference to the heart of imperialism to explain to these people what they've done, what the situation is, um, and what could be done to alleviate it. Um, and it's very important, Friar notes, that it is happening in London in the metropole. I think it's also really important to note that this is happening in 1900. You know, when this is all being said, transatlantic slavery is only a generation away. Uh, in America, it was abolished around 1865 and in the Caribbean around 1830s. Um, and I say that term loosely because there was a period of apprenticeship afterwards that was up to seven years. Most people didn't actually know that they were no longer enslaved, even though the law had been passed in Britain. Um you know, people that very much had an enslaved parent or were enslaved themselves could still very much be alive in 1900. Um, and, you know, as we move away from that time within this period of history, the 20th century looks forward rather than back at slavery in many ways. Um, and it naturally becomes diluted as we distance ourselves from that history. We can't actually rewrite it to be less brutal than it was because we're moving away from it further in time um thinking of kind of how we think about enslavement now in that period back then it was very much fresh you know it's in people's living memory so these papers are going to hit all that much harder um because uh, enslavement and, and the brutality of it all and the following kind of work of the british empire and not just britain but france and the dutch and um, the Spanish and Portuguese empires um, that maybe weren't as large as Britain's but did definitely do damage um, over the world and the Caribbean is always an interesting place because um, it really did see so many European powers passing through um, and having an impact on what the Caribbean looks like and all the islands and nations over there. So it's very important to remember the context of the time we're speaking about and, and the feeling that people would have given these papers. It's like giving papers about black history or police brutality in the wake of, of George Floyd or in 2020, or in maybe doing something after the murder of Stephen Lawrence, you know? Whilst those aren't necessarily equatable or comparable at all to transatlantic slavery, um, when you can feel and you have lived through the moment that is pushing you and spurring you on to say the things that you're saying, I think it's all the more kind of potent the words that might come out and to the rest of the papers uh, mrs anna j cooper gave a paper on the negro problem in america lots of american papers here um i wonder if that will continue um liberian frederick johnson gave a paper on the progress of our people in the light of current history john e quinlan from saint lucia um gave a paper on the situation regarding black people in south africa william meyer who was a trinidadian medical student at edinburgh university spoke about the pseudoscience as a justification for racism, a very interesting topic, I can imagine. Richard Phipps spoke about discrimination against black people in Trinidad and in the Trinidadian civil service. D.E. Tobias in America, from America, spoke about uh, Africa, the Sphinx of history in the light of unsolved problems. Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, um, a famous name, if we ever had one, argued that essentially black people could not maximise the potential anywhere on earth because of racism. And the way that he would kind of explain that was the fact that, you know, because black people were forced into a position or, or viewed as a, in a position of inferiority, um, it would kind of be a disservice to not only black people but to human evolution because it was hu hindering human potential because 
black people were not afforded the same rights and freedoms and privileges um, as white people. And this would lead to them essentially not being able to uh, reach their full potential. They were being capped. Um, and that was a disservice, not only to black people, but to, to human potential in a wider sense, you know, this idea that, well, how do we know that that black person couldn't have found a cure for cancer or figured out how to get to space or f discovered GPS, which they did. Um, and so, yeah, these kind of bars, colour bars and, and racism and, and imperialism that was coming down on black people was just hindering society and mankind as a whole. The Reverend Henry Smith, uh, who lived in London, spoke up against colorism um, and this idea that we shouldn't let differences in shade of color of black people interfere with anti-racist movements um, because it was not going to lead to any kind of progress uh, for black people as a whole. Um, they also moved on to practical tasks within the conference, such as electing new members to the new association's executive committee, and they were Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, the composer, Frederick J. Ludin, former director of Fisk Jubilee Singers, Henry Francis Downing, a former member of the U.S. Consulate Service, Mrs. Cooper, Washington teacher, um, and an Englishwoman, uh, Mrs. J. Compton Unwin, wife of the publisher T. Fisher Unwin, and John Rich Richard Archer, who were mentioned at the start of this episode, and whose next week's episode will be all about, who later becomes mayor of Battersea. Um... Additionally, there was an address to the nations of the world um, and that was sent to heads of state in which African people, people of African descent or African people were living. The petition was also sent to Queen Victoria, who was monarch at the time, um, on the situation of black people specifically in South Africa and what was then known as Rhodesia. Um, a response was given from the colonial secretary. However, it was described as bland and in some ways slightly dismissive. So they used this conference not only to give papers and to speak on situations over the world, but also to practically put the, the work and the talk they were doing into motion by writing to people of influence within Britain who could do something to change the situation. However, the response from that colonial secretary was described as very bland. And the work I do at the moment, I look at a lot of colonial office records and their response is very dismissive for the most part in a lot of different ways. And I don't really look at this period of, of the early 1900s. I look more at the like beyond the 1940s, um, sometimes the 1930s, but never really any earlier. And they're really dismissive then. It's like that was their whole personality trait to be rude and abrasive. Um, the colonial office were not really very supportive or encouraging but the whole office is built upon colonialism so why would we expect any different the conference was reported in london newspapers the westminster gazette argued that it quote marks the initiation of a remarkable movement in history the negro is the last awake to the potentialities of his future what a headline i think the less we say about that the better um, following the conference, the Pan-African Association began to decline, unfortunately. There were many reasons for that, primarily the fact that Williams, uh, who set up the conference, went to Jamaica, Trinidad and the US to set up further branches and was abroad for the majority of 1901. In this time, the treasurer, Dr. R.J. Colenso, dissolved the organisation in the UK, allegedly due to lack of funds. Furthermore, the fact that the organisation was founded in Britain to support a global group of African people was always going to be a tall order when you think about it. 
especially when the majority of supporters uh, for the Pan-African Association um, had only kind of honorary membership. It only allowed for honorary membership. Um, the black members who were permanent residents were mostly students and in some cases would go back to their country of birth when their courses were done, meaning numbers would fall and fluctuate quite frequently. Um, Henry Sylvester Williams himself could not devote his whole time to the organisation um, as he was called to the bar in June 1902 and became one of the first um, barristers of African descent to practice in the UK. He ended up going to South Africa to defend black people there and he joined other organisations such as the League of Universal Brotherhood, Native Races Association and the Fabian Society. He also became one of the first two people of African descent to be elected to public office in Britain. When he won a seat on a local borough council as a progressive candidate, Williams decided to go to Trinidad to be back with his family and began building a legal practice out there. However, he unfortunately falls ill at the end of 1910. On the 26th of March 1911, he died in hospital. Um, unfortunately, kind of the saddest part of the story in many ways was his fifth child was born only five days after his death. And it seems that the organisation, the association, um, that a lot of the work was done through for the Pan-African Conference kind of dies with um, Sylvester Williams. And unfortunately, it's a kind of similar story to like the League of Coloured Peoples, which we looked at a few episodes ago, um, whereby individuals have such a big role within leadership in an organisation that, God forbid, something happens to them the organisation also kind of crumbles in many ways. Um, but, you know, the Pan-African Conference was something that can't be forgotten. The legacy was very clear and very strong. It brought together so many different people of the African diaspora all over, uh, from all over the world to Britain, um, and it served its purpose in allowing black people a space to discuss the situations that they found themselves in globally and what could be done to alleviate them from these situations. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. That is all we have time for. But I do hope you have a wonderful week and tune in next week for an episode on John Archer. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History Hotline. To continue the conversation, follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter. The History Hotline is hosted by Deanna Lynn Cook. Research is done by Zakia Rias.